walking in darkness, you living in the land of night, you have seen a light, you walking in darkness, you who are living in the land of night, you have seen a light. some other catastrophic end-of-the-world-as-we-know-it scenario for this entire calendar year. But be reassured, it's all coming to an end very soon. And then it will begin again. It happens every year in the church calendar. This is what Advent and Christmas are all about. In Advent, we remember the light that came into the world as the infant Christ, and we look forward to the promised second inbreaking of God into the world when peace and mercy will overwhelm the darkness. The old world will pass on the darkest night of the year, and the new world will begin with each day bringing more light. Welcome to Waiting for the World to Begin Again, the House of Mercy Advent Podcast. This is Episode 2. For Advent Podcasts, we've asked community members, writers, musicians to reflect on the theme waiting for the world to begin again. In this episode, we hear from Kari Khalil and Julie Bach. As I've gotten older, the holidays have become more difficult. The dissonance between the mass consumption of what has become capitalism's most important holiday and what are supposed to be the holy days of Advent, combined with the pervasive cultural expectation that one must be constantly happy and merry during the darkest days of the year has just become too much. But opting out of the performance seems like even more of a challenge. Our ancestors understood this time, the weeks before the winter solstice, as a time of waiting reflection, and rebirth during the darkest and sometimes most frightening time of year. Going into debt, gaining weight, shoving one's neighbors for the opportunity to buy a cheap flat-screen TV, all with a jolly smile on one's face, seems like a uniquely American mangling and hollowing out of this sacred time. A number of years ago, my dad started his own winter solstice ritual in the backyard. He burns the sticks he's collected from fall yard work, on the night of the winter solstice. He claims if he doesn't do this, the days won't start getting longer. He's quite insistent about this. We tease him about it, but the fact is he's tapped into something ancient and true with this small celebration. And my sisters and I always check in to make sure he's burned the sticks. What if he's right? This year, the winter solstice will occur on December 21st at 4.02 a.m. This is the astronomical moment when the northern hemisphere will be at maximum tilt away from the sun. From this moment forward, we will begin our tilt back towards the sun and longer days. In the days leading up to and following this moment, the sun appears to stay at the same low noontime elevation without moving. For a few days in midwinter, the angle between the sun's rays and the plane of the Earth's equator, called declination, appears to stand still. The word solstice is derived from the Latin word solsticium, 
which means the point at which the sun seems to stand still. Through their observations of the sky, ancient people saw this too. And while we have the benefit of telescopes and a modern scientific understanding of gravity, our ancestors did not. After this period of midwinter, the days had always started getting longer again, but who's to say this year they would, especially if a ritual needed to be performed in a certain way or a god appeased. The solstice was a time of waiting for the sun to start moving in the sky again, to gather to ward off the darkness, to share in abundance before the longest and most dangerous part of winter when starvation was possible if not imminent. It was a time to feast because animals that could not be kept alive during the deep winter months had to be slaughtered. The Anishinaabe people, who were on this land for thousands of years before us, followed a lunar calendar. In an interview I found online with an Anishinaabe elder, he talks about the year beginning at the full moon, quote, after the sun stands still. This is the spirit moon and a sacred time set aside for ceremony and storytelling. In pre-Christian Northern Europe, the season of Yule, from which we derive many of our modern traditions, began on the winter solstice with Mother's Night. It was a night to keep vigil, to ensure the sun would return and to honor female deities, ancestors, and living female relatives while recognizing the birth of a new year. But as mothers know, birth is not only beautiful, it's scary and dangerous and painful and messy and waiting for it to happen can be the most difficult time of all. During the season of Yule, the veil between the world of the living and the dead is at its most thin. In the Jewish tradition, there is a story in the Talmud Avodah Zarah about Adam, who was created on the first day of the year, Rosh Hashanah, which is in autumn. The story goes that when Adam noticed the days getting shorter, he said, and this is from the text, woe is me, the world around me is being darkened and is returning to its state of chaos and confusion. This must be the kind of death which has been sentenced to me from heaven. He took upon himself to pray, fast, and look within. After eight days, he noticed the winter solstice and saw that indeed the days were beginning to lengthen again. So this is the way of the world, he exclaimed, and he celebrated for eight days. This may be an alternative to and a broadening of this origin story for the festival of Hanukkah, or it might be an attempt by the rabbis to reclaim what they considered the idolatrous Roman festivals of Calends and Saturnalia for God. Either way, it's a beautiful story about the winter solstice. Adam is terrified. He knows he's sinned and believes, believes he's brought on the end of the world by his actions. Imagine his relief when the days start growing longer. And yet each year he chooses to remember his fear and anguish with a festival that honors both the terrifying time, the waiting time, and the time when he's realized the world will continue to go on. In Western Christian tradition, the feast day of St. Thomas the Apostle was originally celebrated on December 21st, the winter solstice. Thomas is remembered for doubting the story of Jesus' resurrection when it was told to him by the other apostles. He wanted proof. In John 20, 25, Thomas says, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my fingers in the mark of the nails and my hands in his side, I will not believe. When he does have the chance to do just that and professes his belief to Jesus, Jesus says to Thomas, 
Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen, yet have come to believe. This exchange earns him the nickname Doubting Thomas. But I can relate to Thomas, and sometimes I feel more like him than the blessed. While there are some Western churches that still celebrate the original December 21st feast day, the Roman Catholic Church moved it to July so it wouldn't interfere with Advent. Personally, though, I can't think of a better time to celebrate the patron saint of doubters than on the darkest day of the year. There is also a tradition in Western Christianity of celebrating the winter solstice with a longest night service. This service is traditionally held in order to recognize those who are grieving and in pain during the Christmas season and to remember those we've lost during the year. This seems especially resonant this year. For all the talk of unprecedented times, what we are going through is not new. The story of humanity is the story of upheaval and hunger, of plague and political unrest, of apocalypse in the true sense of the word, and of waiting and hoping for better and brighter days ahead. I take comfort in this. While the sun seems to stand still, and while we wait and wait and wait for the world to begin again, I take comfort in rituals, services, ceremonies, and stories that connect me to the past to people who understood the waiting and the fear. We've lost so many and so much this year. As the days get shorter, let's sit together and be sad. Let's hold our grief and fear for a little while. Others can have their shiny, jingly, jangly Christmas. This year, I'll be feasting, in spirit anyway, with Thomas and the doubters, with the sad and the scared and the ill. This time is especially terrifying. While we're waiting for the Savior, for a vaccine, for healing, for Inauguration Day, for the days to get longer, for justice and mercy. Because while we're waiting for it to arrive, there is still a chance it may not. As best we can, let's wait together. Waiting for the world to begin again. If change is life's only constant, then perhaps waiting is life's only state of being. Or at least a very common state of being. I'm mindful of those sudden unforeseen events, diagnoses and car crashes and tsunamis that change life in an instant but even those instantaneous changes tend to lead to periods of waiting, waiting for treatment, waiting for bones to heal, waiting for the funerals. I'm reminded of my daughter in sixth grade complaining about her teacher's constant refrain that sixth grade was to be understood as preparation for middle school. Sixth grade gets you ready for middle school, which is just supposed to get you ready for high school, which is just supposed to get you into a good college so you can get a good job, and then you get married and have kids, and then you die. I was dismayed at her cynicism at just 12 years of age, but I had to admit she had a point. At every stage of life, we can think of ourselves as waiting for the next stage, it does sometimes seem that on any given day, at any given moment, we are waiting for something right around the corner. 
Since a diagnosis of chronic fatigue syndrome four years ago, I've been waiting for my body to begin again, never mind the world. Recovering from chronic fatigue requires a lot of rest. So often when I'm staring at the ceiling, too fatigued to read or even listen to a podcast, but not able to actually fall asleep, things I've read in the past come floating through. A frequent visitor is the sentence, be still and know that I am God. I had to go looking, but turns out, yes, it is from the Bible. It's from Psalm 46, which is a pretty nice psalm and worth reading in part during these current world circumstances. It starts, God is our refuge and strength a very present help in trouble. Therefore will not we fear, though the earth be removed and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though the waters thereof roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with the swelling thereof. There is a river, the streams whereof shall make glad the city of God the holy place of the tabernacles of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her, and that right early. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the heathen. I will be exalted in the earth. It's certainly a comforting psalm, especially these days when we fear the earth literally being removed, or at least Homo sapiens being removed from the earth. I find it interesting that the psalm is written mostly in the present tense. God is our refuge and strength. But when God instructs us to be still, the psalmist switches to the future tense. God will be exalted in the earth. That tense implies a certain amount of waiting. So while I'm lying in bed waiting for my body to begin again, another bit often comes floating through that is actually connected to the bit from Psalm 46. It comes from T.S. Eliot's 1940 poem, East Coker, which is the second of his famed four quartets. Eliot takes the psalmist's injunction to be still and transforms it for a 20th century audience. He writes... I said to my soul, be still and wait without hope, for hope would be hope for the wrong thing. Wait without love, for love would be love of the wrong thing. There is yet faith, but the faith and the love and the hope are all in the waiting. Wait without thought, for you are not ready for thought. So the darkness shall be the light and the stillness the dancing. 
Stillness is an important concept in Eliot's four quartets as our opposites. In all four poems, he's looking for answers, for some kind of peace in a world gone mad with nationalism, war, disease, financial collapse. Sound familiar? He keeps returning to the idea that what we seek, whether it's peace or joy or love, is to be found exactly where we don't expect to find it. Thus, in darkness, we find the light of God. In stillness, our spirits dance. I suppose I ought not put Eliot on par with scripture, but I am an English major, and I do think his reading of Psalm 46 in circumstances that are really so much like our own is worth a good look. And what occurs to me, reading his call to wait without hope and without love and without thought, is this question. When we say that we're waiting for the world to begin again, do we know what that means? Do we know what that world will be? Or are we, as Eliot proposes, not ready for thought? The writer of Psalm 46 seems pretty darn certain of at least a few things. Quite ready for thought, as it were. God is our refuge and strength. No doubts there. There is a river that will make glad the city of God, equally certain. God will make wars to cease and cut the spear in sunder. Sounds like a good plan. Of course, maybe that's the point of a psalm. It's a song to reassure people, to celebrate through music our faith and our hope. Eliot, of course, is much less certain For starters, he's a modernist poet. Also, he's writing this poem as England marches off to a war they're expected to lose and lose badly. And they've been here before. Just 25 years earlier, their whole world at war, the earth torn asunder by weaponry heretofore unimagined, old ways of thinking shattered, and new ways of thinking seemingly stillborn. No wonder he says elsewhere in East Coker that the world becomes stranger, the pattern more complicated of dead and living. Eliot's reading of the psalm might seem bleak, but I think he does find comfort in it. The comfort comes in not having to be sure not having to muster hope and love and faith in difficult times. The comfort comes in recognizing that we may not know what lies ahead. We don't know what the world will look like after this period of waiting. God might not break the sword asunder. The mountains might actually fall into the sea. But somehow, whatever that world is that's just around the corner whatever that world is that may or may not begin again, there is, I think, and maybe Eliot thinks, one 
certainty. It will contain a God that we can know. Perhaps in waiting for the world to begin again, the point is not to anticipate a future imagined by us, but to wait without thought, in stillness and darkness, for a future imagined by God. Walking in darkness, you Living in the land of night You have seen a light You Walking in darkness, you Who are living in the land of night You have seen light Born in battle coats, rolling blood will be few for the fire. thanks to Kari Khalil and Julie Bach. And we've been listening to Seen a Light from the new Story Hill record, Bethlehem. It's out now. Another beautiful record for Christmas and beyond. So happy Advent and a hopeful Christmas and peace and love and mercy to you and all of yours. <laughs>